And that was part of the thesis with Casper is like, why is one of the most important purchases you're making a purchase where you're spending a third of your life with that product? Why is there no brand that you trust? Why is there no like go-to expert or sleep destination? Like we thought that can and should become Casper. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Thomas Decker, sleep is the golden chain that ties health and our bodies together. My guest today, Philip Krim, is working to build the world's leading sleep company, He's the co-founder and CEO of Casper, a vertically integrated consumer brand that's changing the way people buy mattresses and sleep-related products. He's also a longtime entrepreneur who previously founded, ran two other companies, and a pioneer of the direct-to-consumer revolution. Philip, welcome. Excited to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Pumped to be here. So, you know, the first question, it sounds like a little bit opposite of maybe normally the answer I would get, but I, I tend to find a lot of successful entrepreneurs showed a very entrepreneurial spirit from a young age, but you said that you never expected to grow up and become an entrepreneur. So I'm curious, what makes you say that? Uh, well, I, maybe just to qualify that, um, I always liked and was around the entrepreneurial side of things. When I went to college, I didn't expect to start Got it. so quickly on an entrepreneurial journey. You know, I, I started in college uh, studying finance and then eventually switched to marketing once I started to do stuff in e-commerce. But I grew up like around my father who was always doing entrepreneurial things. You know, I, I, I think had a, a bug for it early on, you know, we, yeah. we would sell sodas on the golf course near us. We would go into the pond and get golf balls out to sell them back to the bad golfers who would hit them in the water. Uh, so it was always looking at ways to, you know, kind of hang my own shingle. I guess I just didn't expect to be, you know, only doing that in my career, uh, even starting kind of freshman year of college. So you're hustling early. That was the common theme. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Can't knock the hustle. Well, you know, because usually that comes out early where people with entrepreneurs, they, they're just not not loving school and filling in the boxes and wanting to do their own thing. So it maybe, maybe there was more of that there. So you mentioned that you launched your first business in college, right? E-commerce company. What were you doing and how did you even start that? Yeah, it, this was... Um more of the vein of like, I don't want a traditional summer job again. I had one and it was terrible. What was it? It was working at a, a software company and I had you know no idea. Like we, we were basically just sitting there in Excel all day, like doing data entry back in, I think this was 2000. Um, so it just wasn't a fun way to spend your summer <laughs> um, when you're young. And uh and so, you know, before the summer break, I was just trying to think about ways to, you know, make money to not have to have a traditional job like that. And so I, at the time, again, this is early 2000s, I learned about e-commerce, I learned about HTML and building a website, and uh, I learned what dropshipping was, which is basically like, if I can get an order from a customer, a manufacturer will do the dropship fulfillment, I don't have to ever touch the physical goods. And so I started just calling up manufacturers and seeing if they would let me open an account as a retailer. I could then build a website, um, pull in their product catalog and information, and try online marketing to get orders. And then I could place the order at the manufacturer and they would do the fulfillment. And so I started tinkering around with a few different websites and, and you know, it worked. I, not, not all of them worked, but some of them worked enough where 
um, I was kind of running that business and it was growing and it was enough to you know, help me avoid a summer job. And eventually, you know, I did that after college, you know, grew it to probably, I think at its peak, you know, around 50 people, you know, $10 million a year in sales. And so it was, it was also how I started learning about online marketing, digital marketing, e-commerce, which is really where I've spent my entire career in. So, so rewinding on that. So I'm guessing you were about, if you didn't like your freshman year job, you were probably about 20 years old. You're calling all these companies to get a drop ship agreement. Did they know you were a college student? Were you? <laughs> did they have to extend credit? Like, how does that work? I assume that that wouldn't be their first choice of customers if they knew it. Yeah, this was like <laughs> freshman sophomore years. I was I was saying like eighteen, nineteen, um, and one of the biggest challenges was to avoid letting them know that I was a <laughs> college student, including uh, you know meeting in person or not using a dorm address as like our billing address. Um, so what would you say? I, I am, hey, I'm Philip. I'm the CEO of X or whatever you call up and say. Yeah. And at, at the time, a lot of manufacturers either didn't know about the internet, didn't like the internet, that was foreign to them, um, or they were selling to like everyone. And then that usually didn't work either. And so it was just finding like those manufacturers who were willing to give it a shot. You know, some required that you had a storefront. And so, you know, how, how do you convince them of that? Um, but yeah, it was like, it, it was not, Hey, I'm a college student. It was, Hey, I'm a retailer. I think I could sell your products. We sell, we allow me to sell. So, them. so it's almost an affiliate model. You were like, if I can just get the sale, I can pass it along to someone and they can take care of all the fulfillment. Right. And I get my, my piece of it. Yeah. It was, it was a step, um, more deeper than right. affiliate because we would build the websites. It would be our own, you know, quote unquote brand, but it would just be our own URL. It wouldn't be their name. Um, we would, take the order. We would do all the take sales, the money, all yeah. the customer service. We would update the website. We would pick and choose the product catalog. So we would do the merchandising. So it was um, a layer more than affiliate, but not to where we took the physical goods and we're doing uh, the fulfillment. And I'm thinking it must've been, you know, I think about what you can get set up in Stripe in five minutes now. Like I remember you used to get you getting a merchant online payment gateway must have been not so easy <laughs> oh it, you know, merchant paperwork <laughs> bank paperwork and yeah like you know th this was right after the dot-com crash so people were really afraid of the internet i mean this is when consumers were still afraid of the internet banks were afraid of the internet putting credit cards online was a new thing yeah. I mean, it was all the like wild west of of e-commerce so were you demand driven or supply driven? Like whoever will let me sell their product, I'll go figure out how to find the customers. Or had you figured out some verticals where you could go get the customers? Was that sort of like, and I assume that was SEO oriented at that time? Um, SEO, I mean, we, we would, I would do like research on what was driving search volume and, you know, what people were looking for, where there was, you know, it, it was, I mean, at the time, I guess like paid search arbitrage or SEO where like what was super competitive and avoid that but what was still like already generating search demand so it was a little bit of both um, because sometimes it was really hard to get supply to sell and sometimes it was really hard to capture demand so the sweet spot was where we can get both so what were your categories were they all over the place or were they related to each other mattresses i'm guessing weren't in there probably at the time mattresses actually were in there and uh, so that's how i learned the industry um early on and the reason why mattresses were in there, it was funny, like on the supply demand side, too, there was a lot of demand because um, there were a lot of infomercials for mattresses and that huh. drove search. So Sleep Number, Tempur-Pedic were constantly advertising and these guys didn't have e-commerce websites. And so huh. there was nowhere to buy these products. And so 
um, the industry was slow to embrace technology and, and um, digital and all that. So uh, Matt, we found a, a dropship manufacturer of mattresses based in Denver, Colorado, and we built a few different websites for a few different product catalogs of theirs. Um, but there was, you know, I, I tried poker software. I tried futons and couches, um, you know, higher ticket items where, where you got better kind of first purchase arbitrage. It really was, you know, industry or category agnostic, but where I could kind of meet supply and demand. So it was like a holding company. Yeah, it's not that different than what uh, I knew Neerage uh, and Steve at the time. They were doing with CSN stores, right? They were finding categories that were underserved. It, it was a very similar model when they were just building up different niche websites yeah. um, to that. But it, they obviously went on to a lot of scale and greatness. Um, and, and the reason why they consolidated under Wayfair, which was the same problem we ran into, is operating a bunch of niche websites, you actually don't gain that much efficiency. And so it's really hard to scale. Media became more and more expensive. The manufacturers started selling direct. And so um, that's when we, you know, the, the business model had to evolve. And, and that's what led CSN to become Wayfair. And, you know, we, we struggled with kind of how to scale the business at that point. I remember buying, I needed like something for a speaker. And someone's like, oh, you go to everyspeakerstand.com. Like that was, I think that was their website or something like that at the time. So what you said you sold that business. What was the impetus to sell it? Uh, you know, I, I say I sold it, you know, we, we ended up having to kind of wind it down and sell it to uh, a manufacturer. It wasn't like a good exit. And it, it's because the business got tougher and tougher. So media got more expensive. Um, the suppliers got more savvy with e-commerce and some started selling direct. And we never, you know, raised outside capital for it. And so it was just a, a business that as it got tougher and tougher, we basically saw that you know, it was something that was going to be, you know, really difficult to to run. Again, like Neerage played it super well, and you know, that's when they raised a bunch of money and co and brought it all under one brand. That that was the move. Um, but we just kind of decided to wind down some of the websites that weren't that big and take our biggest categories and you know sell them or give them to the manufacturers that were basically doing the fulfillment. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So we'll get into Casper a bunch in a little bit, but I'm curious, was there a specific lesson or two from that exit where you were like, I'm not going to make that mistake again? I mean, there's a million lessons, uh, you know, I'm sure, especially at the time. But, you know, the idea of what, you know, got you here isn't going to get you there, um, I think is a, a constant theme, which is just that you have to constantly reinvent yourself. And like, you know, what makes a business work from A to B is not necessarily what's going to make it work from B to C. And so the idea of like constantly challenging what's working and thinking about the next thing and thinking about businesses really is like, chapters and and chapters can last but you usually have to kind of go to the next chapter or build on something foundationally and so you know that that's kind of what we learned with that one which is like you know the way we acquired customers uh just stopped working one day because the the economics didn't work and so you know had we been focused on diversifying that earlier and being more paranoid about what could you know not work in the business model maybe we we would have gotten ahead of it and so that's kind of where you know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about is, you know, just because something's working today, how do we go to the next thing? And how do we go to the next thing just to make sure that we're in a good place, no matter what changes? Yeah, the speed that markets change at today, I would say if you're doing the same thing you're doing five years ago, it's hard to believe it would be successful, <laughs> given how quickly things change. Yeah, no, the speed of change is faster and faster. You know, the need to adapt is faster and faster. Change is a constant. I mean, if COVID has proven anything, it's just how dynamic the world is and how dynamic businesses and people need to be and responsive. And so, you know, just trying to think through like, what am I not seeing around the corner that could come up and, you know, bite you is, is something that I think, you know, it's only the paranoid survive, I guess. <laughs> yes, that was, that was a best-selling book too. So what did you do after that business? Um, so what, what I saw towards the end of that business uh, was that mobile advertising was really interesting and mobile was going to be huge. And this was really before the iPhone. But, um, you know, even as smartphones became a, a bigger part of the ecosystem, uh, I saw mobile advertising working. And then I saw, you know, really, it was hard to manage mobile advertising specifically. And so I started a company called Vocalize Mobile that was designed to help local companies take advantage of mobile advertising. So we were doing click-to-call programs where um, we would run the Google Ads, we would set up an account for you, we would manage everything, we would set up a phone number, we would track the calls that we generate for you, and you just pay us on a per-lead basis, basically. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years. I took that business through an accelerator program in New York City, and that's ultimately where I met my co-founders for Casper, and so then I, I started working on Casper. So did you did you give up on that business or you guys came up with a better idea and decided to apply it towards that? So the, you know the, the technology of that business was really interesting. The part I didn't love about that business was selling to local businesses. That's a hard up, hard it's, job. It's hard. Yeah. And you know I a ton of empathy for you know running a local business because I I did that and you know every dollar matters if an ad campaign you know, it doesn't go well, that really hurts your, your, you know, wallet. And there was just a lot of churn. It ended up becoming more of like a call center, like, 
you know, churn and burn kind of uh, sales process. And I, I just didn't like that. I, it's not where I wanted to spend my time. And then uh, seeing that that was how we were going to scale the business combined with then meeting my co-founders for Casper, I decided Vocalized Mobile wasn't going to be um, kind of the, the home run that I was hoping for. And I got really excited about the idea of Casper when I met my four other co-founders. So did you guys, was the original idea for Casper mattresses or did you guys decide you just all wanted to work together and then started looking at categories? No, mat- mattresses were our focus. And, um, you know, so I knew about the industry from my early e-commerce days. Um, my co-founder, Neil, his dad's a sleep doctor. My co-founder, Jeff, uh, was ex-IDEO. He was an industrial designer and he had worked for some of the major mattress companies while he was at IDEO. Huh. So we all knew enough to be dangerous about the mattress industry. And we all just kept talking about like, really, the conversation was first around sleep. And this was also right when Jawbones and Fitbits were coming out to track sleep for the first time. So we were all tracking our sleep, talking about optimizing life for sleep. And then eventually, we just kept talking about like, the most important ingredient to getting a great night of sleep is your mattress. And yet buying a mattress is like the worst consumer experience in existence. Um, There had to be a better way to do it. Uh, Yeah. So it's interesting that you say that. People talk about a lot of business models that are sort of famous over time, like the razor blade. People talk about the mattress model because the mattress companies would do everything they could to obfuscate transparency. You, you couldn't comparison shop. And you know, obviously, that was a good from a business standpoint, but probably rated somewhere between used car, right, from right. a consumer, consumer standpoint. So did you get the sense that particularly millennials just were not wanting to buy like how their parents bought? everyone i mean millennials for sure but it's not like anyone had a good experience (laughs) but because the industry was an oligopoly because the industry was so tightly controlled by private equity for decades they could get away with that and what allowed us to change it is the advent of dtc because with dtc we could go around the traditional retailer and circumvent the traditional sales process and we could go direct to the consumer and so that kind of business model which we you know, we're, we're talking to the Warby Parker guys and the Harry's guys and saying like, you know, w- what allowed you to do that? And again, the razor blade business was great if you had all of the shelf space at Walgreens and Dwayne yeah. Reed. Well, what did Harry's do? They said, okay, we don't need you Walgreens. We'll go around you and do DTC. Same with, you know, Warby Parker and Luxottica. So these were all tightly controlled industries that had huge margins and wasn't the best consumer experience. And we were all able to change the way those industries work by going direct to consumer going to market with a a great brand, a great buying experience and great product. And that's what we focused on was we said, if we deliver a brand that's relevant to us as consumers, if we deliver it in an experience that's pleasant, transparent, honest, and fair, and we have a great product that stands behind all of, uh, you know, the, the marketing we put in front of it, then that's probably the right ingredients to a great business. So how, how did you, I assume you talk about, I mean, Warby Parker, ostensibly you can ship the glasses or ship them back mattresses are heavy. People like to roll around in them. I mean, that's what everyone did at a mattress store. They went and they rolled around in them. So how did, I assume you talked early about how you're going to get around that because I think mattresses was probably, probably one of those things where people maybe with cars and other things were like, people are never going to buy them online. Now, category by category that has fallen, but what got customers over the need to want to go try out their mattress? So when we launched, it really wasn't a thing to have a risk-free trial. So Casper launched with originally 40 and then quickly uh, became a 100-night trial. And it was the idea, we, we said exactly what, what you just said. And we said, what's the best way to convince people to give us a shot? 
And oh, by the way, lying on a mattress in a store for 60 seconds doesn't tell you if it sleeps right. You should yeah. sleep on it. And by the way, if you sleep on it and you don't love it, return it at no cost. That wasn't a thing in the industry before Casper came along. So we thought about the trial and return policy a lot. And we said, what would be the, the most compelling way to convince someone to buy a mattress? Well, let's give them the chance to sleep on it. And if they don't love sleeping on it, we'll take it back at no cost to them. All right. So you get the team together. You get the idea. Did you raise money early? How'd you pull the thing together? And you, what would it look like launching the product? Was it, and was it successful when you launched the product? <laughs> yeah. So we, um, we ended up raising, uh, I think, just under $2 bucks, $1.85 million for our seed round. That was a really hard round to raise because, uh, you know, <laughs> we're going to go build a cool mattress brand. Yeah. Okay. You know, people are going to buy mattresses side of the scene. Yeah. Okay. Have you guys ever really like built mattresses? No, not really. Um, so there were a lot of reasons to not invest, but fortunately we found a few investors led by Ben Lear, who's been an amazing investor and supporter um, early on, who decided to back us in our idea. Uh, so we raised a couple million bucks and we were off to the races. Uh, we launched the business April 22nd, 2014. And it really did feel like one of those, you know, like points of validation right out of the gate. Like, we woke up, we thought we would sell a couple of mattresses. We thought if we could keep that up for a couple of days, we would have some inventory and be able to, you know, re-up inventory in a couple of months. How, how many had you built? Like, you guys use contract manufacturing, I think, right? Contract manufacturing. I don't remember the exact number, but I think we bought like 40 mattresses up front or something. Oh, that, was your, that was your launch inventory. Yeah. yeah. And I think we said like that should last us at least a couple of weeks and, you know, it'll give us time to build more. Uh, and we ended up selling that like first day, I think. And then, then we quickly were realizing like the sales kept up and kept growing. And at one point we were, you know, delayed like two months for customers to get product. And the other hard thing, which we, we probably didn't spend or not probably, we definitely did not spend enough time on is thinking about the supply chain and the manufacturers. Like they were not used to selling to someone like us where we were buying, you know, one at a time to ship to one location. They were used to you know, a traditional retailer, I'll buy a truckload of this, I'll right. buy a truckload of that, I'll take delivery in three weeks, I'll take delivery in four weeks. We're like, okay, we're going to send you orders every day. And every day, those orders are going to go to, you know, a dozen, two dozen different places. And so that whole system ended up breaking, we had to go, you know, live in the manufacturing facility to help them figure out how to do drop shipping and help them do order tracking and get us the data that we needed for our customers. You know, we quickly ended up having to spend a lot of time on the back end of the business and uh, it, it was a scramble to really try to keep up with the demand that, that fortunately came into you know, Casper. So was having a two-month wait, was that the club you couldn't get into? Or is that pissing off clients who were expecting their beds? <laughs> uh, pissing, pissing people <laughs> off. Yeah. Unfortunately, like a mattress is one of those things like when you need it, you need it. And um, one of my co-founders, Neil, had a great idea, which is like, let's just send them arrow beds like on us as an apology and like as a way for you to have something to sleep on until you had your Casper mattress. So like ideas like that bought us a lot of goodwill and, and yeah. we did what we could to apologize and explain the situation. And fortunately, the vast majority of our customers were awesome and like super supportive. And they know we were, you know, a startup really challenging the status quo and challenging the big evil empire. And, uh, and they were really great and supportive. But, you know, a lot of customers weren't happy that we were so delayed. I think I read or heard that also, didn't you get shut down by Amazon because they thought you were like an illegal reseller of Aero Beds? They did. Yeah, <laughs> they, they shut us down. We had to 
you know, all use different accounts to buy these. We convince them we're not reselling it. We're just gifting it. And, uh, you know, that, that's the thing with like any startup, like life just throws at you like roadblocks uh, all the time and you just got to run through them. Yeah. One of my favorite stories was when the Peloton, uh, when they got their prototype, it was 30% too big and they had to go find a really big, tall model. So it didn't look disproportional. Right. I think someone who's not an entrepreneur would be like, oh, we're, we're doomed. And, and someone right. who is, is like, all right, well, how do we deal the hand that we're, we're dealt? So I think they found some like six foot eight female bicycle person to, to sit on the bike. But I, that was a really funny story. That's funny. I hadn't heard that one, but makes sense. Yeah. So did you get any thank you notes from Arrowbed? Um, sounds like you did some good marketing for them. No, I don't think we ever did. Uh, I, I should track them down. But no, I don't think we heard from the Arrowbed people. So uh, you sorted out the back end stuff. Obviously, you guys were a category leader and, and you're growing like crazy. You kind of had the industry to yourself. And then soon you got competitors and imitators everywhere. So was, was, was it helpful to growing the market or was it annoying that <laughs> people were just kind of copying you and doing a lot of things that you were doing? Because I've never seen a market. I, I don't think I've ever seen a market become so funded so quickly, which tends to hurt everyone. Yeah, no, I was gonna say, like definitely annoying, not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I I underestimated how much competition was gonna come into the market. I underestimated how many other folks were gonna raise money to come after us with you know copying everything we do. It ended up being way more competitive than you know I ever expected. A lot of that has shaken out and is behind us, and maybe it helped accelerate the growth of the market. But you know, I'm not sure that it did. Uh, but yeah, that that was crazy and frustrating. I've, I've never seen another kind of consumer market like that. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is stop eliminating perfectly good candidates by asking them the wrong questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. 
Go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. The only one that I remember comparable was the blank in a box stuff, I think from five or six years ago, where it just seemed like every day a company was raising $5 million and for something in a box subscription. And it just saturated so fast that few people could make money. Yeah, that's true. There were a ton of those. I mean, every business is competitive. So I, you yeah. know, I'm not saying ours is any worse than anyone else, but it was just one where uh, DTC was getting a lot of attention. Uh, you know, our growth was well publicized. There was a lot of venture capital going into DTC businesses, and there are not a lot of barriers to entry on the supply side. Which you know, these are domestic manufacturers, and they'll sell beds to anyone. You know, in hindsight, I would have spent more time trying to lock up suppliers or d- done other things to give us more of you know a, a sustainable moat on the supply side. But again, I you know I never expected the level of competition that we had. And, but even with all the competitors, the the online market share is still a pretty tiny fraction, right, of the overall market. What what percentage is it today of the mattresses? Maybe just in the U.S. Uh, online's probably like fifteen to twenty percent. Wow. Yeah. And the rest of that is still like big box retailers or more specialty retailers. The, the biggest retailer in the country is uh, Mattress Firm, who's a specialty retailer. Then like furniture stores kind of make up the next biggest category. And then it's kind of department stores and big box. And have those stores gotten into e-commerce or are they still, or are they really going after the come in if you want to see the bed? No, they're, they're very much in e-commerce, but they their bread and butter is definitely to get people into their stores. So, you know, Mattress Firm has, I think it's, 2,700 stores throughout the country. Uh, so it's a lot of real estate and, and that's where they know how to sell mattresses really well. Um, so that that's their area of focus for sure. You guys have opened some storefronts or, or places too, right? That's right. We have 72 retail stores where you can buy Casper that we own and operate. And then we have about two dozen retail partners uh, where you can buy the Casper products at places like Costco or Raymore and Flanagan or Rooms to Go. Um, and that's kind of throughout the country as well now. And you buy it and go home with it or you try it out and then it gets shipped to you? Um, you could do either. So you can buy it in some of these locations and take it home with you. You can buy it and have that local store deliver it to you. Um, or you can buy it and just have it kind of fulfilled through traditional e-commerce fulfillment. Got it. I know, look, every business these days online is looking for some unique advantage. I, I think it sounds like one of the things that you, you guys were one of the early successes with this influencer unboxing, right? You had this mattress in a box and people opened it. And now people probably pay for huge campaigns to do that. But was that at the time, were you getting that entirely organically? Were people just doing this on YouTube and and then you learned about it? Or did you had you contracted a bunch of people to do this in an orchestrated fashion? No, we, we got totally lucky on that front. Like we, we we said we wanted to brand the box and the unboxing experience. And I think as far as I know, we were the first to ever do that in the industry. But that's really because we just wanted to kind of surprise and delight people when they got the mattress. We did not talk about and did not expect that anyone would film that and post it online and share it. And And that was probably the biggest driver of our virality early days. Um, was sharing the unboxing experience. 
after we saw that it was so popular, we would like try to work with influencers and stuff. But in the beginning, it was totally organic. I wish it was something that we thought of and leaned into, <laughs> but better to be lucky than good, I guess. Do you think it worked better because it was organic and it seemed authentic? Because a lot of it's hard for people to know with influencers these days, knowing how much they get paid to do certain things. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it wouldn't have worked today, probably, meaning like the, the yeah. influencer industry wasn't at all there like it is today. I mean, this was 2014, 2015. So influencers were barely a thing. Um, we got amazing, you know, placements from a ton of awesome folks for free. Now, you know, no one does anything like that for free. So yeah. it just, it, it, that whole tactic wouldn't have worked if we launched today. So good example of the what worked five years ago wouldn't, wouldn't work again. But you guys also put some stuff into the boxes, right? Some surprise stuff. Yeah, yeah. When like, when we were earliest days, we would just go to like the Strand bookstore in New York and buy a bunch of cheap, like old leather bound books and be like, here's a bedtime story on Casper. We would always try this like surprise and delight idea. Like, what can we do to help people smile and think of Casper and share it? And, and we knew there was some stat, I don't remember the exact stat, but it was something like, I think it was Tempur-Pedic at the time. Like when Tempur-Pedic customers had a good experience, they would tell seven or eight friends. And so like, we were like, that's going to be really important for us when it comes to our growth is just making sure they have a good experience because mattresses are one of those product categories where like, I don't know about you, but like, you know, before Casper, I'd call up a friend like, Oh, you know, what kind of bed do you sleep on? Where should I go? Uh, especially moving to a new city, like what, what retailer, there's no like go-to brand that you trust. And that was part of the thesis with Casper is like, why is one of the most important purchases you're making a purchase where you're spending a third of your life with that product why is there no brand that you trust? Why is there no like go-to expert or sleep destination? Like we thought that can and should become Casper. Speaking of the brand, I think a lot of people assume it might have to do with the ghost, but that is not the case, right? What was the what was the genesis for the name? Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> uh, no tie to the ghost. Uh, we had the idea certainly before we had the name, and we gave ourselves a deadline on the name, and we just kept spinning on different ideas and there are five co-founders so agreeing on a name was like next to impossible but we gave ourselves a deadline and then the one name that we all kind of kept chuckling about was my co-founder luke his roommate at the time was this guy named casper and he was a six foot six german guy sleeping on a twin mattress and for whatever reason like no matter what time of day or night we were at luke's apartment working on this idea he was there sleeping and he didn't fit on the bed and we always laughed about that and so we're like, at the end of the day, at the deadline, we're like, let's just name it after Casper. His name was Casper with a K. Um, we obviously went with C, but we gave him a, a free bet to thank him for the inspiration. And he thought that was a great deal. And so I think it was a, a win-win. Was that a domain available or did you have to buy it? We started with caspersleep.com. So Got that it. was available. And eventually okay. we bought casper.com. You, you didn't buy it from the ghost or whoever owns the, the rights for that? No, um, <laughs> a, a guy named Gary Casper from Houston, Texas, who oh. I, I stayed in touch with, bought the domain because it's his last name, I think in the, the late 90s. Uh, oh, and fascinating. So you, Osper, you offered him Casper family or something like that for in, in exchange? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he had some backups. No I way. remember, I think Delta was in this sort of war with Delta faucets. You know, this was before they were in e-commerce trying to get the domain. And they were so many people were going to Delta faucets by accident that you know it was driving their server costs through the roof and stuff. So I think that was Delta's play. Like let us let us take this off your hands so you don't have all of our customers causing you uh, increased storage. Right, exactly. Which which would probably have been if he would have had a Casper domain, he probably would have had a lot more uh, 
website fees than than he would have been looking for. True. So I'm curious, back on that sort of change thing, you know, if we think about 2021, the whole D2C revolution has been precipitated on, hey, you can get to customers, you have better margins, you know, a lot of influencer, Facebook, paid search. One CEO who's running a very fast growing $100 million business said to me a few weeks ago, a quote for a book I'm working on, he said, the only guaranteed in my business is that my paid media costs will go up every six months. <laughs> and right. I just saw Facebook's earnings and it was like, you know, the average cost of an ad was up 40% year over year. Um, if you were building, how would you think about building a DTC company today? And, and I, you know, I've heard from a lot of people that, that the core anchor channels that work for them, they're just getting priced out of today. So is it still as attractive today or, or is it harder with the sort of triopoly prices kind of going through the roof? No, it's way harder than it's ever been. And it's only going to get harder. I mean, there's more competition for uh, search, for, for display, for Facebook ads. Competition drives up the impressions and, and Facebook and Google are just going to continue to tax that entire ecosystem. Uh, with Amazon being a, a bit of a different area to play in, but also Amazon's going to keep taking their fair share. Uh, so I, I think you definitely need to go in eyes wide open that again, like the customer acquisition channels that worked, you know, two, three, five, ten years ago are not going to be the ones that work down the road. Uh, you know, it's not to say that you can't spend any money there, but they're just right. not going to scale like they used to. Uh, so I think one of the key things that you need to think about is what is your angle or, you know, secret sauce on how you're going to acquire customers outside of Google and Facebook, because it is super competitive, super expensive, and it's only getting worse. So if someone was coming to you for money today, pitching you on the next D2C thing, what what would you be wanting to see from their customer acquisition plan? Uh, like you just need something outside of those channels that that is sustainable. What would give you confidence? Because if they said to you, say, look, we got 80% of our business off Facebook ads, would you invest in that business? Or would you, <laughs> you're like, look, you guys are going to get priced out in 12 months. No, it's tough. I mean, my, my like mantra on that front, which is what Casper is very focused on too, is distribution matters at the end of the day. Like yeah. if you have better distribution than your competition, you could probably afford to pay more on Facebook and Google than your competition. And so then it becomes scalable. And so you have to have something that's uh, different. So if your product is orders of magnitude better than everyone else, then you know maybe you can afford to, to outmarket others. That's very rare because it's really hard to have product defensibility. Um, if your product is distributed orders of magnitude better or, or further than your competition, then you could probably afford to outspend them online or for some reason you have better margins. But you have to have something that gives you a, a very clear, like not a 10% better, but like a 10x better kind of position versus your competition in order to think that you can kind of outspend them. Can you explain what distributed better looks like and how that gives you like how that gives you an economic advantage from a marketing standpoint? Yeah. So, um, well, for Casper, for example, the more stores that there's a Casper mattress, the more that people are naturally going to see Casper, they're going to know the brand and they're going to go online and search for it. And if I already have a lot of people searching and buying online, I can use some of those economics to kind of reinvest to, to build on my presence online. And so there's aspects of frequency. There's aspects of driving higher conversion rates. So distribution to me drives demand and drives the overall business that you can kind of build on in a unique way versus competition that doesn't have that same distribution. So, so when you say distribution, you're not talking about logistically as much as you're talking about distribution of your presence Point in different sale. places. Yeah. Got it. 
Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like acquisition marketers are trying to learn brand marketing and brand marketers are trying to learn acquisition marketing these days. Maybe they could agree to meet in the middle somewhere. It does seem like you need both these days, right? It does. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think Casper's always try to thread that needle. And it's tough because there are sacrifices you make on performance as you move to brand and there are sacrifices you make on brand as you move to performance. But at the end of the day, we're in an environment where consumers want both, in my opinion. You know, you want to buy from a brand that you like, that you trust, that is fun and, and that you enjoy transacting with. But at the same time, you know, if your ads aren't breaking through with direct response or with, you know, hooks that work well from a response standpoint, you're never going to be able to kind of scale and, and break through the clutter. So I think you do need both. I think the way that you go to market with both is very different. But it, it's a challenge, you know, I think every growing kind of DTC or e-com company is thinking about. No, it's interesting. I mean, and one of the things that's for you, think about lifetime value, you know, you don't buy a mattress that often. And I think that's one of the reasons you're focused on Casper being a sleep company, right? Not a mattress company. So what, what do you sort of envision from a lifetime product solution set? Well, so we, we actually do see a good amount of lifetime value with our customers. Um, it's not that you replace your mattress that often, but what we've seen is when a customer has a good experience of Casper, they then are coming back faster than you would imagine to buy additional mattresses for the kids' room, the guest room, a second house, et cetera, and especially with the world moving so much right now. Like we, we've seen lifetime value be a very significant part of our business. And we've also always talked about how we don't want to just be a mattress company. We're really proud of our mattresses. We want to be the dominant mattress brand out there, period. But we want to be more than that. We want to be a sleep brand. And so Casper, you know, we talk about our mission of a, awakening the potential of a well-rested world. Well, to get a great night of sleep, you need more than a great mattress. You need great pillows, great bedding. We invented the glow light to help you fall asleep and wake up in a, a better fashion. So with Casper, we're always thinking about like, what are the world of products that we could uh, launch and design and develop that help uplevel your sleep quality. And hopefully you're coming back to buy those from us uh, over time. So should we be looking forward to a smart bed? <laughs> uh, technology <laughs> definitely <laughs> will enter the bedroom. And we think that technology will definitely play a role in, in kind of Casper's ecosystem or the Casper bedroom of the future. Uh, so I think it's, it's going to be super interesting on not just tracking your sleep, but what do you do with that data and how do you action on it? And I think that's an area that we're focused on. Yeah, the the problem, like what I don't understand is Apple Watch is adding all this sleep tracking, but it also doesn't last more than a day. So you need to charge it at night. <laughs> so this seems like this paradox of now do I have to get another device to track my sleep because I need my watch to charge? So I, I it would seem like maybe, right, you could put some sensors in the bed or something like that that would do the some of the work for them. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of different angles, but to us, the tracking piece is an important first step, but then what do you do with that? Like, how do you actually sleep better and feel better? And, and that's kind of another area that we're focused on where I think technology will help the way that you sleep and will improve kind of the quality of sleep uh, for people over time. Will my bed need antivirus software uh, in the next <laughs> few years? <laughs> you don't want a virus in your bed. Seems like a bad thing, right? You don't want a virus in your bed. That's for sure. So you've gone from startup to public company at this point. What's most different, you know, about being a, a public company, maybe that you could have expected and you wouldn't have expected? I mean, on the, the could have expected, like all the things you hear are true, which is you end up having to think about your business quarter to quarter and yeah. reporting the business quarterly and being judged quarterly. Like that, that's just a different cadence of operating than when you're a private company, most likely. 
in the didn't expect bucket is just that, you know, public markets like things that are very predictable. And mm -hmm. since Casper has been public, we, we were one of the last IPOs pre pandemic and the world has been anything but predictable. And, and that's just been yeah. a much harder reality of living than if we were a private company or than what we expected because you know our business was much more predictable pre-pandemic and then you know we, we were opening up stores the stores were doing well and our entire business model was really focused on omni-channel and omni-channel you know means that they're all working together and that things are going well and then the world you know turned upside down starting you know really like february march and, and we went public february 6th of 2020 so wow so it's literally right and it was it was logarithmic from February sixth to February tenth to February where, where it was like, yeah, I, I can only that must have been absolutely crazy, crazy, yeah. Did you have yeah. a huge spike uh, initially of orders when people were at home and were clear they weren't going to go anywhere and probably were concerned about sleep? You know, we early days I thought the world was ending and I thought like business yeah. was going to be terrible. So we pulled back on everything. We pulled back on marketing. You know, we just started to go into like batting down the hatches and, and save every dollar we could mode. Um, so we didn't lean into it. And, and that was a mistake. Like again, like hindsight demand ended up being really strong and it took us a little while to react to that. You're back to your early days of, of more orders than mattresses back right. to order, back to ordering arrow beds on Amazon. Right. right, right. <laughs> Not quite, but yeah, it was, uh, it was tough and supply chain continues to be something that's just tough because labor's tough. And, you know, again, it's just that kind of theme of like, never thought we'd be dealing with some of this stuff and it continues to be something that we're working through. And I, I think we're doing better than most, but it's just a really dynamic environment right now. Yeah, supply and demand is just a. I mean, if you whatever anyone is dealing with right now, they were dealing with the opposite <laughs> twelve months ago, and their yeah, their businesses. It, it just seems like it's very it's very hard to be predictable right now. Yeah, for sure, and it's like different things over time. I mean, today it's labor. Earlier this year, it was raw materials. Uh, it's just crazy. I mean, and this is not specific to Casper. You know, yeah, it's every broadly. business. It's everyone that's dealing with physical goods is having issues that they never thought they'd have to deal with. Yeah. It, it has been an interesting time for sure. So I'm curious, what, what do you think could be the next frontier for direct to consumer brands? What, are, what are the categories, you know, are there any like categories where the belief is still challenged that people aren't going to buy that <laughs> directly or online? I mean, I see these car, it almost seems futuristic with these Carvana car trucks dropping off cars at your door. Now I'm not, is there anything left? Uh, it's, it's a very interesting question. Cars, I think, you know, Carvana has crushed it and is an amazing business and done really well. I think it's interesting to see healthcare really embrace DTC and companies yeah. like Roman and others change the way that people think about healthcare and interacting with your doctor and, you know, primary care, I think is just in the earliest days of kind of being changed through a direct to consumer approach. Yeah. And then I think like, you know, what, one of the ones that I've been looking at recently is like insurance, like the, the way that people buy insurance is still largely through agents, largely offline. And insurance is, you know, another one of those huge, hugely important purchases that a household makes. And I think, I think people would be shocked at how many people don't have the right level of insurance. Like, I, you know, it's one of those things that it reminds me of the mattress industry. Like when you're buying a mattress, you have no clue what you're shopping for. You do it very infrequently. So there's a huge amount of information asymmetry between who's buying and who's selling. 
I think the same thing is true for uh, insurance. Cars, you know, it's changed. There are sites you can go to to look up values. There's Kelly Blue Book. There's True Car, et cetera. Um, but for some of the financial products that we need as households, um, they really haven't brought that transparency or that kind of proper selling approach to the, the to the industry. So I think there's interesting things that could happen there. There's a ton of digitization insurance, I guess. So is it all lead gen versus actual the insurance itself? Is that what you're saying? There's a yeah. ton of digitization, but it's the same thing with buying a mattress where you kind of get what you pay for and you don't really know what you should be paying for. Got it. And so you could go buy a, a $199 mattress on Amazon today. Is it going to be a great mattress that gives you the proper sleep that you need? No, probably not. And yeah. you could go buy a really inexpensive insurance policy. And is it going to give you the proper coverage when it comes time to make a claim? Probably not. And so I think the digitization has seemed like a solution when in reality, it's just creating more of a problem. Interesting. And you know, your example of the car thing is interesting because look, there's some people out there who still like the gamesmanship of going into the dealer and playing that thing. And I'm going to go back to my manager, but most people I know can't stand it. It's just a, it's a horrible process. And so when COVID hit, everyone I know who bought a car was like, that was so much better. Like, just tell me the price of the car and I'll buy it and exactly. drop it off at my house. And so like, I, I bought a car like 18 months ago. And I was just like, look, I, I just tell me the price of the car and I'll, <laughs> I'll give you a deposit. I'll come pay for it. I just don't want to do this. Damn. Well, we might have the one you want come in. So yeah, the consumers are going to drive this. And it seems like that space still has some has some work to do, but you know, I'm going to go talk to my manager game just seems like the mattress renaming game. It's just not that long for this world. That's right. Like I, I think consumers are, are smart and they have more, I think sensitivity to being taken advantage of. And whether you're walking into a car dealer or you're walking into a mattress store or you're trying to buy insurance from a broker, you know, those moments where you leave the experience, you're like, man, I just got ripped off. Yeah, like, those shouldn't happen anymore. Like, there's the internet, there's technology, there's transparency, and so I think there's a lot of industries where most consumers still have that icky feeling, and those are the industries that still have a long way to go to transform with the internet. There's also the value of your time, right? Where margins on cars are pretty close. If you spend 20 hours to save $200, like you've got to put some. I, I asked, so I had a guy I bought a couple cars from. He was the GM of the dealer. I would just call him every time, like, "Give me your best lease price, and I'm going to come buy it." And when I was picking up the car and I was talking to him, I said, so tell me, like, what generally who's happiest, unhappiest? He's like, the happiest people probably got the worst price. And, and the unhappiest people probably got the best price because they got themselves so locked up in the price that literally I made $100 on the car, but they, they still thought that they were getting screwed. And I've always said with the whole car buying process, I think for all of us, you're talking 20, 30, 40,000 or more, like it's not the hundred dollars, the $200. You just don't want to know that the guy five minutes before you or the woman right. 10 minutes after you paid more or less for the same thing. Exactly. It's, uh, it's just feeling like the sucker and no one wants to feel like the sucker. Right. And that's how the car buying business worked, uh, or at least did until I think the internet came along and started to change that. I think Saturn probably had the right approach, but the wrong product. Right. It's also <laughs> funny though, like the consumer behavior uh, trends are hard to break, which is like, yeah. my guess is what Saturn learned. And one of the reasons <laughs> they struggled is people like buying things on sale. You know, the everyday low price works for Walmart when you're ubiquitous, but in reality, sales still work and using holiday periods to drive an event that makes you feel like you're getting a better deal on a lease or 
whatever the purchase is, like th- that works for consumers. And so there's always this balance of playing into consumer behavior in a way that's like constructive and effective for the business. So that was one of the things we learned with Casper also is like, you can be overly principled all you want about how to sell and, you know, how to talk to consumers and be transparent and straightforward. But at the end of the day, there are things like, you know, having a promotion that just work. And, but I think there are good ways to do that to your point where everyone gets the same promotion and you're really transparent about it. Not, Oh, this guy looks like a sucker. I'm going to try to get a hundred dollars out of him. So it's just kind of making those decisions about how to run the business, but do it in a, a good, honest way. Seems so simple, but often so hard to execute. So Last question for you, Philip. So what's a personal and professional mistake that you've made? And it could be singular or repeated that you've learned the most from in your career. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, You know, this is a mistake I think that I still make is, uh, I don't know, hiring people is just really, really hard. And I try to always wait until, you know, the last second to hire because you want to be efficient and save money. And then because you waited to the last second, it feels like there's a lot of pressure to get someone into a job quickly. And I always have this idea of like the perfect candidate. And of course, no one ever is that perfect. (laughs) You ended up making sacrifices. And I feel like I just keep getting caught up in the process of hiring as opposed to trying to be like more methodical and more disciplined with the approach. And I, I know your audience is a lot of business owners or business managers. And so like people just ends up being so important to how the business operates. And I feel like that's an area where I still have a long way to learn and a a long way to do better at just hiring and, and making fast decisions on when someone's not the right fit, being more kind of disciplined on how to decide if someone is the right fit. And it's just an area that I, I want to keep working on personally. So is that is that a version of the the higher slow fire fast? It sounded like. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Somehow everyone gets there eventually. I think through through some sort of pain, but they they seem to get back there originally. It's like what you said. It's always easier said than done. Like yes, yeah. everyone knows that, but no one likes to fire people. No one likes to get to that point. Hiring is really hard and really time consuming, and always too late. And so anyway, I I think it's just one where like, you know, it's really tough to do that really well. Yeah. If you can master that, we'd all be, we'd all be on a a remote Island enjoying margaritas rather than uh, (laughs) working so hard. So Philip, where can people learn more about you if they're interested? Oh, I have no idea. Um, you, you have a blog or anything, or, or other than going no. to Casper? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not on social media in a big way. I don't have a blog. I don't. Right. Write. <laughs> so, so they can know. just keep listening to this. Yes, uh, great. Exactly. Check back with you. All right, great. Well, Philip, thank you for sharing your story with us. It's an amazing story. Uh, you know, there there aren't a lot to go from startup to IPO. So, really enjoyed chatting with you about it. Thank you. It's very kind. I appreciate it. It's fun to be here. All right, to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. Uh, we'll include links to Philip and uh, Casper.com on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as that's what helps new users discover the show. Um, so thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. 
I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.